The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I will admit that um, I went into the hearings thinking a little bit of this as a sort of you go to war with the army you have, not the army you wish you had, um, in that I have for you know, more than a year, been a big proponent of the idea that an independent commission should have been doing a lot of this work, that really the this was not perhaps a job for the U.S. House of Representatives. And we ended up with it being a job for the U.S. House of Representatives because Republicans blocked the creation of an independent commission. But last night, I really felt like this was a reminder of what Congress is capable of. And it shows it showed me, at least, the strengths of a congressional investigation. I'm Natalie Orpet, executive editor of Lawfare and host of The Aftermath, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 11th, 2022. On Thursday, the House Select Committee to Investigate the January 6th Capitol Attack, better known as the January 6th Committee, held the first in a series of public hearings it will use to present the findings of its ongoing investigation. The hearing laid out the evidence of Trump's culpability in bringing about the attack, and also heard from witnesses about the role of the Proud Boys and the experience of law enforcement officers guarding the Capitol that day. Today, we're bringing you audio from a live event we held on Twitter yesterday, June 10th, the morning after the hearing. My colleagues, Quinta Jurassic, Molly Reynolds, and Roger Parloff, joined Lawfare's editor-in-chief, Benjamin Wittes, to discuss their impressions and answer questions from the audience. We'll be hosting these events on Twitter Spaces the morning after every hearing, so you can join us for the next one on Tuesday, June 14th at 8.30 a.m. Eastern. Find us on Twitter for more details. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 11th, day one of the January 6th committee hearings. Quinta, get us started. What did you make of uh, yesterday's hearing? I was extremely impressed, honestly, by what the committee was able to do. So essentially, this was really uh, committee chairman Benny Thompson and ranking member Liz Cheney sort of walking through what the committee had found, retelling the events of January 6th for those who perhaps had faded in their memory a little bit and kind of setting out um, what it was that they planned to do over the next fate of hearings. So it's kind of a, a curtain raiser, a bit of a teaser. It was astonishingly well-produced, I think. 
I know uh, Molly Reynolds, and I'm, I'm interested to hear what she thinks here, has noted that, you know, this is kind of an example of what you can do if you don't have a disruptive minority party uh, trying to create problems constantly. So because there was no, you know, Jim Jordan, uh, the committee was really able to present a, a unified front. We had uh, lengthy opening statements from Benny Thompson kind of setting out the historical importance of what was happening, sort of situating it in context of the Civil War, uh, which I, I thought was quite powerful. Uh, he talked about his own upbringing in the, in the South. Then we moved to Liz Cheney, who was sort of pointing directly to Trump's culpability. And from there, the committee was presenting, you know, a, a true multimedia production. Uh, we had, you know, slow Ken Burns style pans over photographs. Uh, we had some really I think, jarring and upsetting footage of the sixth and then closed with testimony from Nick Quested, who is a documentary filmmaker who was embedded with the Proud Boys on the sixth. And uh, Caroline Edwards, who was a officer in the US Capitol Police who was hurt quite badly in the course of the riot. Um, and saw uh, Officer Ben Sicknick shortly after he was attacked. Sicknick, of course, being the uh, U.S. Capitol Police officer who died following the events. So I thought it was a, a quite impressive show of, you know, what the committee has been up to. They really a lot in, in the way of kind of showing their work, uh, trying to drive home just how much work they had been done. And one thing that I thought was striking that either Thompson or Cheney said at the during the hearing was, you know, our investigation is not over. We are continuing. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see where things go from here. Roger Parloff, uh, your impression. So Roger, for those of you who don't know, follows the criminal process uh, involving January 6th with particular closeness uh, and in particular has written a great deal about the uh, Proud Boys and Oath Keepers indictments and associated uh, matters. Um, so Roger, what were your thoughts on, on day one? Well, at the 20,000 foot level, Representative Cheney's opening statement would have left, uh, I think, every prosecutor at DOJ thinking, why is she doing this instead of us? She laid out that this is a winnable case. And so that's sort of an, just an overview. With respect to the Proud Boys, the key things we had already known, but there were some things fleshed out that were new, at least to me. And uh, now we, we knew, for instance, the key thing, which was that uh, the very first barricade to be toppled seems to have been at a place called the Peace Monument, northwest of the capital, just northwest. The, the ironically named Peace yes. Monument. We knew that the Proud Boys had gathered there. And then uh, another rioter named Ryan Samsel, who is actually not believed to be a Proud Boy, went up and spoke to Joe Biggs, who is a, a key Proud Boy who's been charged, put his arm on his shoulder. They had a conversation. And then right after that conversation, Samsel goes up to the barricade with a second rioter and begins to shake it and topples it over on top of, in fact, Caroline Edwards, Officer Edwards, and she strikes her head on the concrete curb and blacks out. That's the beginning of the, the riot, of the really the insurrection. And we knew that. She added interesting testimony about how Biggs, right at that moment, which is 1253, uh, you know, he had a, a megaphone and he begins to foment the crowd, not just against like Vice President Pence, but against the officers. And he begins to talk about, you know, they got their paychecks during COVID and he begins to talk about their pay scale. It's a very, you know, clever demonization of them to get the crowd angry specifically at them. 
she had met, and she noted she'd never seen this before. And uh, uh, that's when she realized, and she calls for support at that point. That was a very interesting detail to me. And uh, there, there are other things about, you know, the, the Proud Boys that morning took a strange path. They never went to the Ellipse. This was known. They, they gathered at the Washington Monument at 10 a.m. And then they went to the Peace Monument, which is on the west side of the Capitol. Then they went around to the east side of the Capitol, took pictures, had lunch, had tacos, in fact, then came back to the Peace Monument. Uh, and that's where things start. And, and Benny Thompson suggested that maybe they were casing the joint. Um, there was also uh, uh, Caroline Edwards said that they met another group of Proud Boys at the Peace Monument. And I don't know if this is consistent with the casing the joint idea or not, but uh, another group from Arizona. And uh, there was all, uh, so there was an implication of orchestration and, and planning. And of course, 1253, that's seven minutes before the joint session starts at 1 p.m. Uh, that's uh, so the timing obviously was thought out. So all of this was interesting. Another small point, or maybe not, I don't know, uh, but one of the people that, um, that they had a brief conversation with, with a guy named Jeremy Bertino, who apparently spoke to the uh, January 6th committee. Uh, I had, and he is a regional leader from North Carolina of the Proud Boys, and he is named as a uh, person one in the current indictment, uh, top a seditious conspiracy indictment. And uh, so if he is cooperating with the uh, January 6th committee, uh, he might be cooperating with POJ. I don't know, but that that might be a significant thing. So I'm going to I'm going to go to Molly. Molly, what were your impressions? So Molly uh, is our uh, I think her official title is our congressional guru. And so uh, looking at this from a congressional performance standpoint, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I will admit that um, I went into the hearings thinking, or the last night's hearing, thinking a little bit of this as a sort of you go to war with the army you have, not the army you wish you had, um, in that I have for you know, more than a year, been a big proponent of the idea that an independent commission should have been doing a lot of this work, that really the this was not perhaps a job for the U.S. House of Representatives. And we ended up with it being a job for the U.S. House of Representatives because Republicans blocked the creation of an independent commission. But last night, I really felt like this was a reminder of what Congress is capable of. And it shows it showed me, at least, the strengths of a congressional investigation. Um, as Quinta mentioned earlier, I think we've really come to have very low expectations, often appropriately, for kind of Congress's public performance in these situations. Um, we've come to expect sort of arguing and really strict five-minute questioning periods going back and forth between the majority and the minority and witnesses not actually getting to speak. Um, but last night we saw, we saw something different. And it also sort of, um, I think, illustrated how there are reasons why, quote unquote, political actors, so in this case, elected uh, representatives, kind of know something different about how to tell a story to people who they have to try and reach every day in their work. Uh, and that that's a, a skill they have that maybe some others um, might not have. I don't know, for example, 
if in the world where this work was being done by an independent commission, we would have had kind of this sort of multimedia storytelling um, experience. And I do think um, one of the things that was really kind of effective was sort of the the extended time that the chair and the vice chair had, the extended um, amount of times that the witnesses had to speak. There wasn't, as best I could tell, like a clock running on any of them. So that really, again, illustrated like what Congress can do um, when everyone is rowing the boat in the same direction. And then the last thing I'll say is that I thought they were remarkably effective at sort of stitching together um, somewhat disparate parts of the narrative. So we've talked a lot in the past, so basically since the committee was created almost a year ago, about how it saw its goal as trying to tell a story for the American public. And there's a lot of criticism, some from Quinta and I, some from others, that I, I think was fair, that kind of why are they waiting this long to tell that story? But Mr. Thompson um, has said all along that his goal was to get as much of the information and as many of the facts as they could, and then to tell the world about it. And that's, I think, really what we saw them start to do last night. Yeah, so I want to emphasize that point a little bit, but with a, a perhaps dissenting spin on it. I, I think one of the strategic decisions that the committee has made is that it is not going to use public hearings at all for investigative purposes. Rather, the purpose of these hearings is almost like an oral report. It's to present findings using the format of an investigative hearing. So they have sworn witnesses, but they totally already know what they're going to say. And it's kind of pre-cooked. And the whole thing comes off to me anyway, a little bit as a, a pageant of presenting findings that normally we would associate the presentation as a written document or a, even a press conference and the hearings themselves as part of the process of gathering the information. And this has sort of, in some weird sense, retained the form of that, but it's it's very much a, a fake. And, you know, while I agree that it was effective, I also think there's something a, a little bit from a sort of from a democratic point of view, a small d democratic point of view, a little bit unappetizing about the use of the investigative form as kind of like a, a middle school book report. On the other hand, I will point out that there were a couple of things related to Trump's personal culpability that the committee was extremely effective about presenting, and, and uh, Liz Cheney in particular. Um, one was the emphasis in her presentation on the point that Trump either knew or should have known that he had lost and was advised repeatedly of this. They used uh, interview uh, testimony from, among other people, Bill Barr and uh, Ivanka Trump, most powerfully, as well as Jason Miller, that the, you know, that they were advised that these voter fraud claims were, were total, as Barr said, bullshit. And the second, you know, area uh, where I thought they were a little bit less effective was in connecting Trump's conduct to the violence itself. Here they presented a bunch of Proud Boys and saying that they were there at the president's invitation. But I think the the gravamen of this, and they presented the material about Trump being sympathetic to the idea of hanging Mike Pence. But, you know, it seems to me that ultimately the Trump culpability question comes down to 
two matters. One is what he did in the period of time in which he was essentially AWOL after his speech and during the riot. And the second is to what extent they can show that that riot and the, the insurrection was actually orchestrated by White House officials at his behest or to whatever extent they can show that. And it seems to me they made some progress on on both of those points, more on the more on one than on other the other. But I I do think the ultimate success of the endeavor is going to be to the extent they can shed light on on those two narrative points. Okay, we are ready to go to audience questions. Andrew Kent, the great Andrew Kent, the floor is yours, sir. Hi there, thanks. Um, I was wondering if anybody has thoughts on, you know, to what extent, uh, you know, what happened last night sheds any light on the question about whether there's going to be um, Department of Justice action against, uh, you know, people in the White House or the White House orbit. Roger, uh, do you have thoughts on the degree to which any of this bears on the criminal process? Well, really only only what I just said, that, uh, that uh, it's hard to watch this without thinking, uh, why aren't we doing something? But uh, I think the answer is uh, they're doing what they think they can do. Uh, I think this uh, gives them encouragement that when you put it all together, it's a convincing case. But... I, you know, they've got plenty of professionals, and I, I, I assume they're uh, approaching this methodically. And this is—I uh, I doubt they saw something tonight. I mean, they are, of course, trying to get the materials, which they don't have yet, which is a little surprising. And eventually, they will get them. But uh, the timing of that is going to—we have some cases coming up right now, including the key case with the Proud Boys in August. So um, there are discovery issues if. Uh, you, you would like to get all that material out as soon as possible and turn it over to the other side and uh, so that you don't have to delay those cases. We'll Quinta, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah. Um, one thing that I thought was really notable was how I do think that, again, I'm, I'm just going to footstamp everything that Molly said, that we really saw here something that is very specifically congressional. Um, you know, that this is something that is, is being done by a committee that is part of a political entity. And I actually think that's a strength rather than a weakness. But it was notable to me how the committee really wove in elements of what the Justice Department is doing. At one point, I think Benny Thompson said that the Justice Department is, you know, continuing to work with cooperating witnesses. They drew again and again on material from criminal complaints and indictments of January 6 rioters. They pointed out a ruling from a judge in California that there was potential, uh, there was a likelihood of, of potential criminal conduct by Trump and John Eastman, who was involved in uh, recommending some of the efforts to overturn the Electoral College vote. Um, so I don't know, you know, I can certainly see an argument for how this potentially puts more pressure on the Justice Department to take action. Um, I do think, though, it, the, the real thing that jumped out at me was the extent to which the, the committee seemed to sort of present what it was doing as something that was really complementary to the criminal process and to the legal process, that these are sort of all parts of, of one bigger whole. Um, now, of course, we, we know that Cheney uh, particularly has been quite aggressive in arguing for uh, individual criminal culpability on his part in terms of uh, she's argued he obstructed Congress. Um, so I'll definitely be interested to see whether they push more on that. But the impression that I got was sort of, you know, they're, they're, they're doing their own thing, which is uh, compatible with a slightly different thing that the Justice Department is doing.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work 
of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, so I uh, agree with everything that Quinta and Molly and, and Roger just said. I, I just want to add the, the, the following. The investigation at the Justice Department is a bottoms-up investigation, as complex criminal investigations always are. That is, you start with the people who are easy to indict, you work your way up the chain. The congressional investigation is a top-down investigation. They started with the question, who do we want to assign political accountability to this for, uh, to, and specifically, what can we say about Donald Trump? And those are both completely legitimate ways of thinking about it, but they are very different. So if you want to understand the state of the Justice Department investigation, the question you have to ask is how high up the ladder have they climbed? And the answer is they have two very, very serious, seditious conspiracy indictments, one against Proud Boys, one against Oath Keepers. They have flipped a couple of people in both of those cases, and Roger can talk about that specifically. And so the question is, Uh, If you're thinking about what impact this has on the Justice Department, first of all, it generates political pressure, which they will can be expected to ignore. But it also if the the really interesting evidentiary question that this matter could theoretically bear on is what is the relationship between Oath Keepers, Proud Boys and political echelon? And that can be you know, that's where the rubber hits the road in these two styles of investigating. You know, Liz Cheney, yes, there is a question about Trump obstructing the vote count about the Eastman materials. But I think where the real rubber hits the road in the criminal investigation is likely to be who was having contact with Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. Okay, uh, Lorax Behorn, the floor is yours. Hi. Um, yeah, I was curious whether there is a site or anyone tracking the evidence that has been used, like which comes from maybe open source sources and which comes from uh, discovery, if there's an easy way to keep track of that. Do you mean in the in the congressional investigation specifically or in general? I mean, in, yeah, in the hearings and the congressional investigation, the top down one that you just specified is different from the criminal ones. Yeah, so I let me, uh, Quinta and Roger may have, and Molly may have additional thoughts on this, but let me just give you a, an overview. Uh, so first of all, on Lawfare, we have the January 6th project resource page, which has an enormous amount of, of material. On the criminal side, specifically, the GW project on extremism has a, a an extraordinarily valuable database that they've been keeping since the beginning of the criminal investigation. The committee itself has released a bunch of information. Molly, Quinta, Roger, what what am I not thinking of off the top of my head here? 
So one thing that I'll note about the committee specifically um, and in the context of last night's hearing is that um, in the video footage that they showed, there was sort of each piece of video, um, they indicated kind of where that was from. And so you saw that some of it is from the footage that they obtained from um, Mr. Quisted uh, in the course of his documentary work. Some of it is from a police body camera uh, footage. And then some of it, and this is actually, I think, important to talk about for a moment, some of it is from the Capitol complex itself, both um, exterior cameras, um, as well as interior cameras. And there was a lot of reluctance, um, particularly early on in the investigation, on the part of um, the Capitol Police and other kind of Capitol complex authorities to be really open about where that um, footage was taken, um, because of sort of ongoing security concerns about building itself. So if you were watching last night, at least um, for me, one of the most arresting parts of an excruciatingly difficult to watch video was the footage of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's own staff um, fleeing uh, his Capitol offices. And that is that's footage that like is from a camera that I'm sure folks were not super eager to tell people about the existence of. And so this question of sort of where different pieces come from, I think is an interesting one. And that's just kind of one observation I'd make. Anybody else have other proposed sources of open source and catalogs of information? I will just point to the, the January 6th committee's Twitter account, actually. It's certainly not, you know, a, a exhaustive compilation of everything. But one thing that I was really struck by last night, and, as, and I think points to the way that the committee is clearly trying to make this, you know, a, a real multimedia production, with how, you know, they would show a video, for example, from depositions. So uh, one particularly striking, the first video was a a video of from Attorney General Bill Barr, who, is, as Ben mentioned, said that he thought the uh, voter fraud claims were, quote, bullshit. And then, you know, a couple minutes later, a video clip of Barr would appear on the committee's official Twitter account. And they continued to do that over the course of the hearing. So I don't think we're expected, or at least the committee hasn't indicated uh, any plans. So follow Friday, the, uh, the, you know, hashtag follow Friday. The exactly, January exactly. Event. Uh, so I don't know if we're expect if they're expected to release all of the video, but Benny Thompson did say um, on television after the hearing wrapped up last night that they will be releasing the full deposition transcripts of the interviews that they conducted. Um, so I definitely recommend for people who are looking for primary source material, um, keeping an eye on that Twitter account and on the January 6th committee's official website. They seem very committed to sort of showing their work and making information available to the greatest extent that they can. So we actually have in, in the audience uh, uh, Rahini Kurup, who curates uh, Lawfare's January 6th document project. Uh, Rahini, if you uh, want to describe it for us and point people to where they can uh, find it, I've invited you to speak or send me a, uh, uh, a request, and uh, we'd love to hear from you on that. Sorry, Roger, you were going to say something. Uh, just that uh, ProPublica also has a page uh, uh, that has a lot of the uh, video footage from the criminal cases. I have to say the video footage is is overwhelming from these. Uh, you know, in fact, this has been a problem in the criminal case. There's just too much. There, uh, as Molly said, there are 515 closed circuit cameras around the Capitol. Uh, there was press footage. Everyone present, including the perpetrators, was made video. A lot of that has come out. And, and then documentary filmmakers. There's just terabytes of video. Um, so it's, it's pretty overwhelming. So we have Rahini here. Rahini, what material can people find on Lawfare in the evidentiary department and where can they find it? 
Sure. So if you go onto Lawfare's website and on the top toolbar, there's a January 6th project button. And then you can find our full resource page called the January 6th project. And so we have a collection of primary source documents related to the congressional response, criminal prosecutions, civil litigation. And if you want to look at the committee's work in particular, under the committee, the congressional response button, you can find all of the select committee documents that we've been able to find and put together. Um, so things like subpoenas, records requests, letters to the select committee, um, as well as other congressional documents, um, especially from the earlier months of the investigation before the select committee was formed. Um, and you can also find the hearing videos and transcripts and testimonies as well. Um, and then on the Congress on the criminal prosecution side, we have selected documents and same with civil litigation. We have, it's not fully comprehensive, but it's everything that we think would be interesting to Lawfare's listeners. Thank you, Rahini. Teddy Wilson, the floor is yours. Yeah, good morning, y'all. Um, I just had a, a quick question and I, I, I was wondering, you know, how much do you think the way that the committee is presenting the information to the public is a response to, or maybe learning the lessons of uh, kind of the perceived failures of the Mueller report? Super interesting question. I don't know who to direct that to, so I will just say in order, Quinta, Molly, Roger, and then I will say whatever we have to say on that subject. Yeah, I agree. It's a great question. And I was thinking about this um, as I as I watched the hearing last night. I think that's a huge factor. Um, and, and I will say, Ben, I'll take this opportunity to, to disagree with you about the, the way that the committee is kind of using the, the hearings to present material that they've already uncovered. I think that um, one of the real problems with the the Mueller investigation was just that there was so much information that came out over such a long period of time and dribs and drabs. It was a complicated story. It was hard to keep all of the names straight. It was hard to keep track of what was new and what wasn't new. And I think what the committee did here really incredibly was kind of take a step back and say, okay, everybody reset. You know, it's, it's been uh, a year and a half we're going to remind you what happened. We're going to remind you how brutal it was. And we're going to, you know, sprinkle in the new information that we found, um, sort of show you what we have been up to this whole time while kind of quiet. I also think that, you know, one of the things that you saw with the Mueller report is that the Mueller team sort of was completely silent, released this 450 page, extremely dense document. And then I would argue sort of got played, um, frankly, by Attorney General Barr, who released an extremely misleading top line summary that kind of took over the news cycle. And one of the things that I think we see the committee trying to do here is present information in a way that is indigestible by members of the public who don't have time to follow the twists and turns. You know, they're, they're showing uh, video clips, they're putting them on Twitter, they held this hearing in prime time. Um, it's clearly extremely attuned to sort of how people consume information in a extremely fractured informational and media environment. So it certainly seemed to me, I don't know if I would say that they learned the lesson. I do agree that they're responding to some of the problems with the rollout of the Mueller report. And uh, we will see if it's effective. Molly? Yeah, I agree with Quinta. Um, I think that sort of not just the kind of like slightly higher level lessons that um, uh, Quinto was just explaining. But I think really even just in the sort of form of the way that they um, have decided to kind of use the hearings is to me 
just like the next logical step in the way that they approached the um, particularly the first um, Trump impeachment hearings, which is to say they took in those uh, in that investigation, they took a large number of depositions. They culled from those depositions the individuals who they thought it was most important to hear from. Then those uh, individuals came and appeared publicly. And then that was the the base from which the impeachment trial happened. And I think it's important to remember that um, in some cases, it's some of the same individuals that we're talking about who were um, who are involved in this investigation, perhaps most notably um, Adam Schiff, who we did not hear from last night, um, uh, as sort of an aside, um, but relevant to what we were talking about before. It is quite uh, remarkable that um, there were uh, seven members of the United States Congress who sat in that room on the dais last night and didn't say anything. Um, Again, that is not um, kind of what we've come to expect from members of Congress. Shocking Um, display of humility. Yeah, uh, seriously. And so um, I think that they, I think that sort of gather all of the information, figure out which of the information we want to use witnesses to speak about publicly, and then um, that's how the the hearings unfold. I do think that that is um, sort of a lesson they learned from the first uh, Trump impeachment. And then in this case, sort of ramped up times times 100 because they have um, uh, they have taken by press reports approximately a thousand they've conducted approximately a thousand interviews um, and we will I think in the coming weeks hear from some more of those individuals both via their video uh, taped uh, interviews and then also um, as reporting has started to come out some of them will appear in person as well. Roger? I agree with what's been said and uh, I'll cede my time back to Chairman Wittes. All right, I will just add to what's been said that I think the question is very perceptive for all the reasons Quinta said, but I think Molly's point is also correct that it is also responding to the perceived failures of the first impeachment to grab the country by the throat. And so I I think you should understand it not merely as, as responding to the perceived failures of the Mueller report, but responding to the other major reporting and investigative failures uh, on Congress's part to connect with uh, the broad center uh, or center right of American politics. Chris Kenny, the floor is yours. Thanks for taking my question. Um, I was interested in one of the facts detailed by Representative Cheney about a meeting in the House between Trump, Powell, Flynn, and Giuliani that was interrupted by staff and then followed by the tweet uh, talking about the rally being wild, inviting folks to the January 6th rally. I'm curious, two parts. One, uh, what in the record do we already know about that meeting, if anything? And then two, what do you all expect we may hear about what happened inside that room? Thanks. Roger? Which meeting, the meeting in the uh, Oval Office on January 6th, which meeting? It was shortly, it was before the 6th, if if I'm remembering correctly. it's a, a meeting with uh, Flynn and Powell in the office, and after that, uh, Trump tweets the, the infamous will be wild. Oh, oh, that's correct. The meeting prior to the tweet inviting everybody to the rally. There was not a lot of detail in Representative Cheney's description, yeah. but but that's essentially what we heard last night. Yeah, that was December 18th, and um, uh, that was the that really wild meeting. Um, and we now know that it was actually an, an aide to Peter Navarro that sneaked those guys in. Sidney Powell and and, uh, Flynn and um, Patrick Byrne was there too. Uh, And Giuliani, although he was not part of that group, he was actually the voice of reason at that group. And it went late into the night. This this was where they were discussing uh, bringing in either uh, the military or or Department of Homeland Security to seize the 
uh, voting machines and maybe to have the military rerun the elections in, in swing states and um, cooler heads prevailed. But then a few, like an hour later, he put out that uh, pivotal tweet, the uh, it will be wild tweet focusing on January 6th. Yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know in, in terms of criminal law. Those were things, those were crazy things that they didn't go word on. Uh, so I, I don't know. It was presented as yet another. There was this flailing. It was, I guess, what the judge out in California said, you know, that you had a coup in search for a legal theory. And that was where uh, the coup aspect of it really was coming out in, in spades. But um, it, it was a stray sort of abandoned. So I, I don't know how they handle it, uh, if that's uh, something they can that would be admissible in any of the criminal cases uh, as just sort of the whole flailing uh, from one scheme to another. I really don't know. Rita M., you get the last uh, question today. Okay, so there's a criticism out there that this is just a kangaroo court. And my question is, how accurate is that criticism or in terms of other committee hearings? Like if there was a scale of kangaroo court, where would this fall? Well, so I, I, I guess I'll take that myself. Um, so first of all, it's not a court, right? And uh, the, the, there's a category error in the criticism. To be a kangaroo court, something has to be adjudicating something. A congressional committee doesn't do that. It is simply reporting and making legislative recommendations. And so the relevant question is whether the material that it's putting out is true or not. And also, I suppose, whether it's ignoring other information that would mitigate or would cut in a different direction, whether it's being unfair. I have not seen any evidence that the 1-6 committee is being unfair. It's uh, being demanding of information, but that's its entitlement and its job. Nor have I seen any evidence so far that in its limited production of of, of material so far that it's been inaccurate. And so I would say right now the criticism has virtually no merit whatsoever. I'd be interested in whether any of my colleagues disagree with that. No, I um, I agree with that. And I would just like if I could shout something from the rooftops, it is that first thing that you said, this, this idea that we don't want to make a category error in thinking about Congress as a court of law. Uh, Congress is a different branch of government with different strengths and weaknesses. And I think we'll see those on display. But this is um, this is Congress doing um, what it is supposed to be doing. We are going to leave it there. Molly Reynolds, Quinta Jurassic, Roger Parloff, thank you all for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.